Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the 3-0 Show, part of the Athletic Baseball Show. It's Wednesday, October 12th. Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, Katie Wu here with you. One game into each of the division series. We'll check in on each of those four matchups. We'll say goodbye to the 2022 Cardinals. And depending on how long that eulogy takes, we may also say goodbye to the 2022 Mets as well. So we have something for almost everyone. And then we'll talk about some other departed playoff teams later on this week. A pretty fun first day of the division series, unless you were a Mariners fan. It was fun for a while if you were a Mariners fan. It just took a hard turn in the late innings, thanks to a Jordan Alvarez walk-off home run. And it's interesting to me that uh, I was reading Joe Posnanski's newsletter this morning. He described the home run as inevitable. And I think that's the exact right word to use for the situation, even though the Mariners tried to do anything and everything to get a matchup they wanted against someone who's been one of the absolute best hitters in baseball since the day he arrived in the big leagues. You know, I'll throw this one to you first. As far as the the moment itself goes and, and just what the Mariners did to kind of handle the late innings, do you think they made the right call going with Robbie Ray in that matchup against Jordan Alvarez? If you look at how, if you look at Jordan Alvarez's heat maps, and you look at how he's done against lefties, you'll see that he's done really well against lefties, but he has a hole. And there is a hole in the heat maps, low and in sinkers from lefties. It's like one of the only blue spots you can find because he can cover the entire zone. He can has power to all fields. He does handles lefties and righties. But lefty sinkers in are a hole. So in terms of process... I don't know. I don't hate it. The, the I think what happened was it just wasn't far enough in. You know? <laughs> like, we're talking about he missed by four or five inches. The average pitcher misses his spot by 13 inches. That's what research tells us. So, he may have missed his spot by less than average and too much. <laughs> that, by the way, was the biggest game-changing moment in the history of the playoffs if you judge it by win probability added. Uh, it, it actually passed Kirk Gibson's homer, um, and it was the biggest one ever. That's a little bit of a nugget from uh, Jeremy Frank and will be random stats on Twitter. So I uh, I kind of believe it. I mean, it, it felt that way. Uh, Robert Ford had a really great call on the radio. He lost his mind. <laughs> just, how could you not he's just shouting <laughs> so uh you know i i don't remember uh things that well but i remember the first time i saw a batting practice for Jordan alvarez i think he's the most complete game hitter in the game i don't know if it was inevitable 
But once Jeremy Pena got that single, it kind of felt inevitable. <laughs> All they had to do was get that one out. I think this was the the script that the Mariners needed in so many ways, right? They got to Verlander early in this game. They could have stolen the Verlander game in Houston, which would have been theft, and it would have put the Mariners in this position to go back to Seattle and just end the series in Seattle, even if they lost game two. I wonder, though, Katie, do you think it's a good thing to have a day off here? Like, is it good to get a, a mental break and to press reset if you just suffered a loss the way the Mariners did on Tuesday. I don't know. And I thought that was surprising. I'm still quite like not quite sure what day it is. So I was expecting to see another four game slate and I checked the schedule and I was reminded, no, there is a random off day after game one. I think if you're a team like the Astros, that might hurt your momentum a little bit. However, they did just have a whole buy buy round and seem to do just fine at the end. I think if you're the Mariners, I know this from the Cardinals perspective and how they lost their game one. They wanted to play their next game immediately. I remember Ollie Marmol went on the podium and said, I wanted to play a doubleheader that day. So I think for the Mariners, you stew a little bit more. I'm not sure. I think it will say a lot about their team core and resiliency. They seem to be a pretty resilient team if you take into consideration what they did to Toronto. But we'll see. I think maybe it's a little bit longer to maybe it will work out in their benefit because it allows them to kind of let those emotions, those frustrations, disappointment subside a little bit and really come out for game two with a pretty clean slate, as clean as it can be given the way that game one ended. Yeah, it's just one of those games that if you're a Mariners fan, you're looking at this and you're saying, why are we why are we looking at silver linings here? Mm-hmm. So many things went right for them. They had the matchups they wanted late. Uh, credit to the Astros. You know, Alex Bregman had that two-run home run off Andres Munoz. I don't know how anybody ever hits Andres Munoz. That seems like one of the most difficult at-bats for any right-handed hitter. So I think Alex Bregman deserves a lot of credit for the earlier home run that even enabled this, this walk-off from Jordan to happen. Yeah, led the league in walks, so he's got a really great eye. Uh, and then uh, combine that with uh, good anticipation there, I think. You just, I mean, it's timing. I, I think that maybe Munoz doesn't have plus-plus movement, even though he throws 102. So, you know, you, that's that's good enough, usually. Uh, but I think uh, Bregman just timed it. I wouldn't be surprised if he was, uh, you know, uh, took a couple hacks at a 105-mile-an-hour heater uh, downstairs in, you know, in preparation for that. So, uh you know, I think that was, uh, yeah, it was that was an amazing at bat. This the the way they they persevered. Um, like, if you're a Mariners fan, annoying, and uh, uh, and I think that yeah, I think uh, for fans, it's going to be a really tough day in Seattle because they have to stew and hear about how this Alvarez homer was the biggest game changer in postseason <laughs> history, and oh, the Robbie Ray thing was so bad, and Scott Surveys should lose his job, and. Yeah, I think you'd rather be like, you know, let's swim, move past this one and, and play the next one. And honestly, I may be out and going out on a limb on this, but I do give uh, Seattle the starting pitching advantage in the next game uh, with Luis Castillo. I, I I take Luis Castillo over Fromber or uh, Lance McCullers. I don't know if I've seen uh, who's announced for that game yet, but um, uh, so... You know, there's some some silver lining was you weren't supposed to win that game anyway. <laughs> Justin Verlander, the Cy Young, you know, and the Astros just kind of be like, we weren't, we almost won the game we weren't supposed to win. Let's win the game we're supposed to win and, and get back to work. 
Yeah, but they had everything working. They even got the the home run from J.P. Crawford off of Verlander in the yeah, fourth. Well, We've talked about the bottom <laughs> of that amazing. Mariners lineup before. We're saying, hey, these guys, they, they at least put the ball in play a lot. Well, he did the, the best kind of thing, put the ball in play and then out of play on one swing. So <laughs> Shades of Trent Grisham taking Jake DeGrom deep. No kidding. Yeah, a little, little <laughs> bit of that. You know, I thought you had something about Logan Gilbert throwing a new breaking ball in this outing too. Well, I, I've been I've been focused on his slider because he told me late in the season he wanted to throw Justin Verlander's slider. So I thought, hey, Justin Verlander slider versus Justin Verlander slider. Let's see how I was, you know, just watching the numbers, trying to see, uh, you know, who would win the battle of sliders. Gilbert didn't have a good feel for the slider and it wasn't really doing what he it had like 11% cut, uh, called strikes and whiffs. That's like just you adding the called strikes and the whiffs together. 30% is good. So it wasn't a good day for a slider. So he just went to the curveball and I hadn't noticed this, but late in the season, he started throwing a more conventional 12 to six curveball uh, that didn't go as fast. Still 80 mile an hour is pretty, pretty fast for a curveball, um, but didn't go as fast as his old one and had more vertical break. Um, he had a good feel for it. He got 40% called strikes and whiffs on that pitch. And maybe it was just, uh, you know, they hadn't, they had seen Logan Gilbert a lot. You know, <laughs> the Astros had seen Logan Gilbert a lot. So it was kind of cool that he had this extra, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to throw a pitch you haven't seen this, this year, basically. Let's move on to the other ALDS. Let's talk about the Yankees. They took game one against the Guardians. It kind of feels like if you hold the Yankees to four runs, that should be enough to give yourself a chance. Guardians had some traffic, couldn't capitalize. Uh, An improbable Stephen Kwan home run off of Garrett Cole. What is this postseason, Katie? Why are we seeing unexpected home runs off of aces? Is it guys just making mistakes at the worst possible time and any major league hitter taking advantage. I don't know what to make of that, but you know, mentioned the the Grisham thing with Crawford off of Verlander on the other ALDS, and in this home run, these were all very surprising. And for a moment, I did have that sort of oh, the Guardians are going to do this. They're going to find this way to quietly get a run or two off of Garrett Cole, and then just ride the bullpen to a two nothing or two one sort of win. Didn't play out that way, of course. The Yankees put some runs on the board, got a big home run themselves from Harrison Bader. So what were your takeaways from this game, which I think of the four that we saw on Tuesday was probably the least exciting in the end. Yeah, I think I think the overwhelming theme of this postseason has been to have the most outrageous storylines as possible. I, I feel like with the amount of drama and with the amount of upsets and turmoil for some teams, it feels like we should be in the championship series by now. Great for baseball, I'll say. But yeah, when you're looking at the Guardians and Yankees, and I would agree, I would think of all four games, the Yankees-Guardians was the most predictable and went out that way. Improbable home run from Stephen Kwan, which is great for the Guardians. But for me, I'm wondering now after watching three games, how they're going to sustain success without scoring. When you're looking at teams in the postseason, teams with success, they have two things. They have starting pitchers that can really fire it in there, and they have hitters that can mash. And with the Guardians, we just haven't seen a lot of consistent of offensive production. And when you're going against a team like the Yankees, especially in that ballpark, you have to hit the ball and you have to figure out ways to score multiple times, and you have to leave the yard with people on base. So these solo home runs from Cleveland, they're great. I mean, the one in the 15th inning two days ago, three days ago, exciting. One of the best things that have happened in that wild card series. But if you're the Guardians, you have to figure out a way to, to score more consistently. Otherwise, it could be a very quick exit for them in the DS. 1,000%. Katie nailed it. I mean, just to, 
the uh, if you look at the correlations, here comes the, the math guy. <laughs> uh, you know, the the it's still batting still matters a lot. If you just look at uh, you know what have who's won the World Series, uh, you know, in the past. Uh, I think we have one team that had a below average offense that uh, won the World Series. It was the Braves, uh, one of the Braves teams back in the day. Uh, they happen to have like, you know, three Hall of Famers on that one roster. So it's like, uh, OK, if you have three Hall of Famers in your rotation, then maybe you can have a below average offense. I don't think that the Guardians have three Hall of Famers in their rotation. So, uh, you know, they had a below average offense this year. It was nice. You know, it was nice to see them find a way to win with a different kind of offense. I like seeing different kinds of ways of winning. I like that they had this high contact singles based offense, but you know, it didn't match up well against Garrett Cole. Garrett Cole's biggest problem is giving up the long ball. He gave one up to Quan, but you know, if you want to beat Garrett Cole, you got to hit two or three homers, you know, and it just, uh, it wasn't to their strengths, the guardians so that nobody else kind of stepped forward and, and hit that other homer off of, of Garrett Cole. That would have, you know, one more homer could have made it four three. Uh, you know, would have would have gotten a lot tighter. Uh, Might have changed some, made changed the way that game went. But uh, yeah, one solo homer is not going to do it. A couple things we wondered about going into this series. You know, what would the the Yankees A bullpen look like? We found out on Tuesday Scott Efros has a torn UCL. So one of the key late inning relievers that we thought would be at least part of the bridge to the ninth inning is not there. It was Luizaga, Wandy Peralta. And Clay Holmes racking up uh, the outs after Garrett Cole left after six and a third of just one run ball. So I, I think it's still a at least an average bullpen. It's just not as deep as we're necessarily accustomed to because of all the injuries they've dealt with over the course of the season. I feel the Guardians, I think you're happy enough with Cal Quantrill going five and holding this lineup to three earned runs. If you're looking for a silver lining, Aaron Judge, 0 for 3 with a walk. I mean, they they kept the guy that the guy you Quantrill circle, as they say. Twice. Yeah, really nice pitch on on one of the strikeouts too. Just burned off a corner that, if Judge swings at that pitch, it's a a grounder to first base probably at, at best, right? So it seemed like they had a, a strategy that actually worked in this game. Unfortunately, the Yankees handled them pretty capably, and it could have been worse. Josh Donaldson missed the home run by about four inches. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he didn't. Yeah, he didn't play that one well. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation with a, a follower on Twitter. Uh, we were looking through the data and we're like, you know, uh, so Judge gets the most uh, hanging sliders, quote unquote, the most middle middle sliders in baseball. And uh, step one of the analysis is, well, he has the biggest middle middle in baseball. <laughs> he's, a, he's a large human being. So his middle middle is bigger. Uh, step two was he gets thrown the most slide, second most sliders in baseball this year. Marcus Simeon got the most. So second most sliders in baseball. So if you get thrown a lot of sliders, they're going to miss. But in terms of the proportion of sliders that are high in the zone, he's above average. Like he gets more uh, high in the zone sliders. And we were trying to figure out why. And we figured out he has excellent chase rates. Like he doesn't chase low and away sliders. So the only, the book on Aaron Judge is this. You have to hit in the zone low and away with a slider because he'll take it for a called strike. That, But that is such a thin line because now you're, you're throwing a slider. A lot of times you want to throw the slider, oh, if I miss, it's out of the zone, right? Well, then you just walk Aaron Judge, right? So this is part of why I hit so many walks, right? So everyone's just trying to hit just that tiny little blue spot that Aaron Judge has got 
And what they're doing is sometimes hanging it and he bangs it or sometimes yanking it and they walk him and Cal Quantrill just managed to hit that blue spot, you know, because he had the good command. But, uh, you know, that's a little bit of part of why uh, Judge has seen so many middle middle sliders this year. What do you guys think about game two just being a Shane Bieber, Nestor Cortez matchup at Yankee Stadium? Every game's important in the postseason, but it, it seems like if Cleveland's going to steal the series, it's much more likely to happen because they split in New York to begin the series as opposed to going down 2-0. How do you stack these two pitchers up, Katie? Do you think there's a clear edge? Do you think this is actually a pretty even pitching matchup in game two? No, I really like this pitching matchup. I think both pitchers have been inevitably a huge part to their team throughout the regular season. And I don't really necessarily want to give an edge to each team because I think the starting pitching is so evenly matched. I do think it's imperative for Cleveland to come out with a series split or a a two-game split in New York. It is really, really hard to win three straight in the playoffs, even if you do have two at home. If they, And I'm not saying it's impossible. We've seen it before. The Giants come to mind uh, back in, what, 2012. Mm. But when you're looking at both teams and you're looking at overall playoff probabilities and momentum, which is so important in the postseason, I think it's pretty imperative for Cleveland to come out with a win. Nestor Cortez has been nasty all year long. uh, But you, you know, like we said, won't really matter what the pitching does if the Guardians can't find a way to score more than one to two runs per game. They got to find a way to leave that that short ballpark consistently. They got to find a way to get guys on base. Otherwise, the pitching matchup really has no meaning. Yeah, I think uh, I think Josh Naylor's uh, uh, pretty key. He's a guy uh, who hit a bunch of homers early in the season, and then kind of uh, the power faded in the second half. Is he a fifteen to eighteen homer guy, or is he a twenty five homer guy? Uh, is he a guy you can rely on as a lefty? That park uh, is the easiest on lefties. It's the easiest place for lefties. It's like third easiest maybe for lefties to leave the park. Uh, so, you know, I'm looking at a lefty. I'm looking at him. I mean, Ramirez, of course, but, uh, you know, Jose Ramirez, you kind of almost want to, if you're counting on anything, you kind of want Jose Ramirez plus something, right? It can't just be a one man show. Um, you know, there's an interesting velocity thing going on with the the starters there. Nestor Cortez added more velo than almost anybody in baseball this year, uh, pitching wise among starting pitchers, uh, up about two ticks from uh, where he I mean, tick and a half from the beginning of the season. Uh, Shane Bieber is in the middle of losing velo. It's uh, I think the second straight season where he's lost about a tick on his fastball. It hasn't seemed to bother him yet. He's still turning out good seasons. But uh, Velo does matter, and uh, they're going in different directions. Yeah, I just think this is one of those games I would give the slightest of edges to Shane Bieber in that pitching matchup, and the Guardians need to lean into that. It might be ugly, might be 2-1, might be 3-2, might be a game with a lot of strikeouts on both sides, but that script is the way I see the Guardians possibly getting it done if they are going to, in fact, take that game at Yankee Stadium. Let's move over to the NL side. We had one road team pick up a win on Tuesday. It was the Phillies. They got on the board early and often against Max Freed. Both starting pitchers failed to get through four innings. More surprising, though, that Max Freed uh, came up short in this matchup. And you know, Katie, you saw the Phillies up close in that wildcard series uh, against the Cardinals, and they can put runs on the board. I think we saw some of their flaws unveiled over the course of Game 1 of the NLDS as well. Bullpen depth, certainly not a strength for them, but this is sort of why the Phillies are one of those dangerous teams. And if they're winning games that aren't started by 
Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, things are going exceptionally well for them. Yeah, the Phillies, uh, no doubt about it. Phillies can bang. And I know they've been kind of determined by a boomer bust narrative in terms of their offense. But I think a huge key to success for this Phillies offense getting hot at the right time uh, relies on Bryce Harper getting hot at the right time. Bryce has had a heck of a season coming back after that broken hand. He's been okay. He hasn't really hit the cover off the ball, but that 435-foot moonshot he hit off Miles Michaelis in Game 2 of the Wild Card Series, that was huge, I think, for Harper and therefore huge for the Phillies because their lineup, when you look at it, you look at Schwarber, you look at Hoskins, the Phillies had Villamito batting third to kind of split up the lefties, Harper fourth, Castellanos five. If all five of those guys are clicking, that is a heck of an offense. And I think Bryce Harper starting to hit the ball again, did that again uh, in game one in Atlanta. That is the key, Phillies key to success. Look, the Phillies aren't going to win very many 2-0 ball games unless it's the clinching game of the wildcard series in St. Louis, because unless the, only with Wheeler and Nola on the mound, the rest of the rotation's kind of up in the air, but they can hit the ball. So if this offense comes to life at the right time, I think the Phillies should be getting a lot more credit than they got maybe in the beginning of the postseason because as they showed in Atlanta, they can hit. Yeah, it's nice. There's a a great piece by Ken Rosenthal about Nick Cassianos and just uh, the redemption arc that he's he's looking for because he had a poor season, um, you know, had a poor season on the field and and at the plate and uh, he sort of had bits of that redemption story. I mean, that that catch that he made, it was it was a huge catch and uh uh, I don't. It almost seemed like he couldn't see it. I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's what it looked like on the replay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Maybe just put the glove out there, and uh, and luck will luck will find your your uh, find a way. But um, no, I, I think uh, uh, another thing that that occurred to me in that uh, game was, uh, you know, Max Fried um, now has an ERA almost a run and a half higher in the postseason than in the regular season. And, uh, you know, we saw Justin Verlander uh, struggle. And today, uh, Clayton Kershaw is going to pitch. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of belly aching about those three not being as good in the postseason. And uh, to a man, if you look at all three of them, their strikeout rates are higher in the postseason. Their walk rates are where they are normally. And guess what? Their home run rates are higher in the postseason. And, you know, from a pitching analysis standpoint, home run rates are a source of noise. You don't really know a pitcher's home run rate until they've pitched maybe two or three seasons in the big leagues. So all of these guys, you know, Max Fried especially, 60 innings in the postseason. But even with Kershaw and Verlander, you're talking about 180, 200 uh, innings in the postseason. Maybe you can start to say, okay, as a home run rate in the postseason. Well, guess what? The hitters you see in the postseason are all much better. You know, like you're seeing the Phillies instead of the Marlins. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, I I don't actually think that Freed, Verlander, or Kershaw ha- have a problem pitching in the postseason. Um, I did notice that Freed's, you know, speaking of Velo, Freed's Velo has been down. It was one of the most down this year. The narrative was that he can still hit, you know, 97, 98 when he needs to, uh, and so he was saving bullets for the postseason. I didn't see those 97-mile-an-hour bullets in the in the postseason. He was down again. He sat 93. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe there's something hurting him. You know, maybe it was just, maybe just, you know, Velo goes down with age. Uh, maybe it just wasn't a, a great game. I, I'm not ready to say he, he can't perform in the postseason. Uh, he had a really great game 
against the Dodgers in the last World Series, the second time he came back. It's up and down. You know, it's 60 innings. It's I'm not writing somebody's epitaph based on anything like that. No, no need to do that. I, I think it's a great point that the quality of competition being better in the postseason would almost certainly cause home run rates to go up a bit. So I would not look at any of those pitchers and say they can't handle the pressure. Postseason baseball does feel different at the ballpark, even from the perspective of being a fan. When you walk in, there's a certain energy in the park that's not normally there. At least that was the case. I went to my first playoff game probably 10-ish years ago now. And after going to what I think might be hundreds of meaningless regular season games growing up as a fan of the Brewers, maybe that was the difference. It was just uh, going from September to October was like two steps up just because most of my Septembers were were so meaningless before. But um, I don't think players wilt under pressure in the postseason, even though that extra energy uh, is in the ballpark. Uh, a couple other things about this series. we got Game 2 coming up probably by the time most people get a chance to actually listen to this episode. So the pitching matchup is going to be, I think, a good one. I believe it's Kyle Wright going for the Braves. And Kyle Wright has had this really big step forward this year. You know, a completely different pitcher than the guy that we saw that really kind of struggled to secure a consistent spot on the staff in Atlanta in years past. So I'm curious what you think about him, just overall the adjustments he's made over the course of this season and what you think will continue to make him successful. No pitcher had a bigger improvement in Stuff Plus. That's my model that just looks at the physical characteristics of pitches. Nobody improved their stuff more than Kyle Wright this season compared to last season. And uh, it's interesting because he did it two ways. Uh, one of the easiest ways to improve your stuff is to stop throwing your bad pitches. So, you know, he stopped throwing his four seam, which is not as good as his two seam. Uh, you know, he kind of really shifted that proportion of two seamers to four seamers back in the two seam direction. That was good. Um, he, he started throwing his curveball uh, a third of the time. That's a, it's an elite pitch. That was good. But then he also changed the shape on his changeup in his sinker. He's getting more drop uh, on both of those pitches. So he increased, he actually made the shapes better. Um, and the only uh, sort of, you know, asterisk I put on any of it is it's not great command. Sometimes it's there and then he, he's amazing and he will go toe-to-toe whoever the throw, Phillies throw out there and it really looks like an ace. And some days he's nibbling and uh, there's walks and uh, high pitch counts and he's out in the fourth or fifth. So, uh, you know, it's just a day-to-day sort of thing with him on the command, but the stuff is absolutely legit. Uh, by stuff alone, he's, you know, one of these sort of top 15, top 20 type pitchers. Wheeler might even be a notch above that. We saw him in the wild card series, Katie. Uh, you know, four pitches that he relies on pretty consistently. I think the interesting thing here is given the number of relievers the Phillies had to use in game one, aside from Wheeler you know, pitching really well, pitching deep into this game would at least enable them to pick their spots a lot more carefully <laughs> than they did when they almost coughed up that lead in the series opener. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Cardinals game plan against Wheeler in game one, because he'd only made three starts, none of them lasting more than 77 pitches since returning from the IL, was to attack him early. And they did make him throw a lot of pitches early on, but weren't able to sustain significant results, allowing him to go deep and nearly hit 100 pitches in that 
fourth outing of his. Now, I think that was huge in stepping stones because now the Phillies feel like they can stretch Zach Wheeler out a little bit and maybe give him a little bit more length when if he didn't get that far in game one, he wouldn't have, maybe there wouldn't have been a lot of confidence to do so. So we know the Phillies' biggest their biggest weakness is their lack of bullpen depth. So if you have Wheeler that you're now all of a sudden confident can go six, seven innings, you're it's much easier to restructure that bullpen and figure out a way to make up for that lack of depth, especially given how much how many relievers they had to use against the Braves on uh, Tuesday. So I think Wheeler going the distance again, quality start, six, seven innings completely changes how the Phillies can approach not just the bullpen usage of that game, but going forward. So I would assume Sir Anthony Dominguez is actually available because he only threw 18 pitches in Tuesday's game. Yeah, it is a little bit of a lesson. I was just looking two innings. You're going to really use him after two innings, but it was just 18 pitches and he got a little rest in between. Yeah, I think that would be okay. Alvarado only threw 11. I mean, that's their two guys, right? Right. Those are the guys they need. I don't really want to. There is an interesting thing going on. uh, So, you know, I think there's bullpens problems everywhere, right? And the the Yankees kind of went more traditional where Clay Holmes looks like their closer and they used him last, right? Uh, they got had a bridge to him. But the Dodgers last night, uh, Alex Vesia and Evan Phillips are their best relievers. And they don't have really a closer other than those two. They used their best relievers in the 7th and 8th uh, and, and closed it out with Chris Martin, who's who's like the third best reliever probably. So uh, the you saw the same thing with, I think, with the Phillies where Sir Anthony Dominguez and Jose Alvarado are their best uh, relievers. They got the most important outs in three innings. Zach Eflin barely shut the door. <laughs> um, and so I think tonight they would rather uh, Wheeler, Alvarado, uh, Sir Anthony, and that's it. That's exactly what they did in, in game one, and it worked out well for them. If it's close, if it's close and they can get Wheeler enough length, that's what they want to do. Um, because you saw you saw the rest of the bullpen was a little bit shakier. Yeah, Eflin in short relief, very new, and I think Phillies fans would love to see him maybe get a day off in Game Two. That too, it was that's his third possible. day in a row, or it's not the third game in a row. Yeah, it's they had day. a break, so at least I think he's available if they need him. But I think the order of that Phillies bullpen will probably be different if they're protecting a lead close and late. Let's talk about the Dodgers, though. They got on the board early and often, took a 5-0 lead. Padres did come back around, closed the gap to 5-3, had some traffic. But that Dodgers bullpen, it bent without breaking. Evan Phillips is a very good reliever. He's probably their best all-round reliever right now. And the way they're deploying relievers actually gives them the best chance to win, even though it's not that traditional usage that many people want. So I do think... If they're going to press the right buttons and play the matchups correctly, uh, Alex Vesia pitched really well in his inning as, as well. I, they're still going to be a better bullpen in game situations than they appear to be from the outside looking in. So I'm curious, Katie, what takeaways did you have from the opening game of this Dodgers Padres series? Well, first, I think it sounds a little ridiculous to to make the uh, narrative that any pitcher on the Dodgers is underrated, any player really. But I think Evan <laughs> Phillips is very underrated in terms of the value he brings in relief. Dodgers left Craig Kimbrell off the NLDS roster. They all of a sudden didn't have the guy that they figured was going to be the closer at the beginning of the season. And Evan Phillips has stepped up. And, I, you know, we talk about how relievers and closers especially aren't we're kind of straying away from using them in the traditional setting well I think the way the Dodgers use it against the Padres we've seen the Cardinals do this we've seen multiple teams do this 
is the way that they won that game. Because what I saw from the Padres was I know that when you're going into this matchup, all of the the benefit goes to the Dodgers. They are just the better team on paper. But the Padres are a really resilient group. And I thought after the Dodgers scored, immediately getting that Will Myers home run, Padres found a way to keep tacking on, to keep themselves in the ball game. So if you mismatch your relief pitching against the San Diego team that is hungry, that has a lot of power, that can bang. We saw this in New York. I think that you're setting yourself up for failure. So I thought the way Dave Roberts and the Dodgers maneuvered through with their relief pitching and playing the matchups, even though it wasn't traditional, was the way that they won that ball game. I mean, I, I agree. I agree with you too much. You're off the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. No, I mean, I, I agree a thousand percent. If you use Chris Martin where they use uh, Evan Phillips, uh, you lost the game. I, I bet. I mean, you can't you can't do it. We're not. Hopefully, we're not in a simulation. But uh, <laughs> you can't you can't rewind the simulation and try something else. But yeah, uh, maybe you can. I don't want to find out if we can rewind the simulation though. <laughs> the, Mariners fans might want to. They would definitely take their chances on to. pressing rewind. I I try not to be like a nerd's nerd and just be like you know you know it's just the numbers and this and this and and there is no room for for humanity and like. But I did get a little annoyed at AJ Przinsky's calling the game and talking about how you know roles are so super important and having an established closer is super important. Uh, and I just, I don't, I don't actually think it's true from a human perspective. I don't know. Established roles are where sort of nepotism and people get annoyed at that. You know what I mean? Like if you're the hot shot, like if you're the best reliever on your team. And they have, and they're rolling out some old guy who's the closer, and he's just the closer because he's done it before. Aren't you annoyed as hell? And isn't it actually a little bit more egalitarian to be like, hey man, we want to win this game. We're going to use anybody at any time to win this game that we think is the best. You know, like if their best hitters are up, we want our best relievers up. I don't care what inning it is. That's that's the guiding philosophy for our team, not who's getting paid the most or who has a, you know, how many saves they have? Like, like I don't know, man. I, I, I think, like, imagine being Evan Phillips. Like, and they just put Craig Kimball in the ninth because he's Craig Kimball and he has how many saves. You'd be like, yo, what are you guys looking at? Like, I'm better than this guy. <laughs> like, use me. Yeah, there's a lot here. I'm not really a fan of Przinsky's commentary in general. I don't. I think yeah. of the... The color commentators that have been in booth this postseason, there's been a lot of them. He's below average, which, you know, take that for what it's worth. I'd, I'd say him and A-Rod were the worst. Yeah. So we can go into that some other time. But <laughs> Are you the 700 home run guy talking about how good small ball is? Anyway. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think from a player's perspective, we've reached the point now, maybe maybe when A.J. Przinsky still played, especially at the beginning of his career, maybe then players thought that the traditional roles mattered. I don't think today's players believe that. I think today's players think a lot like what you described, where they know who the best hitters on the other team are. They also understand now the importance of those outs against the two, three, and four hitters in the seventh inning, and they want the ball in that spot. I mean, Katie, does your experience being much closer to actual players and the teams than than me? Is that true, yeah, or is it just something I Helsley believe? And Gallegos this year were they just like give me the ball when we need to win? Or pretty much. I mean, when I remember coming to spring, a new manager under Ollie Marmol, and he said, you know, I'm not going to use a traditional closer, and 
for a, a team that's very traditional and as in the Cardinals, everyone was like, whoa, 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 whoa. But the way that Ollie explained it made perfect sense. And I think after we saw it for the first month, fans started to understand, oh, this this makes sense. Because Ryan Helsley, I understand what happened in, in game one of the National League Wildcard Series, whatever. In the regular season was one of the best relievers of all time, or not of all time, excuse me, yeah. of, the, of the season, of the season. Yeah. And... He, they wanted him against the heart of the order in the most high leverage innings. And Giovanni Gallegos, who is a setup man and a very good one at that, I know it's a little bit weird to refer to as a setup man coming in, in the ninth, was fine with that because when Helsley was down, Helsley never really pitched in back-to-back games. So if there was a back-to-back opportunity for that kind of role, Gio would get it. And they just kind of switched off on where the lineup was, the game situation, who was up, who was down. And because they're around the opposing team a lot, because they are players who understand the roles of each team and the strengths and the weaknesses of their own team, they had zero issue with it. Yeah, I just think the Dodgers are an even more dangerous team. Any team that manages their bullpen this way, and there are more teams like this now than there ever have been at any point in the past, if you're playing the matchups the right way, you're better. You're better off for it. And they did it really well, and it paid off in a big way because they ended up holding on to that lead and taking game one. Now, this is the other series, of course, that we'll get a game two in. Clayton Kershaw has the ball for the Dodgers. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, the postseason narratives around him are kind of ridiculous. So what does this version of Clayton Kershaw bring to the table that we've seen over the course of 2022? Yeah, you know, it's important to also point out what you're saying about, you know, this version. You know, yes, his postseason ERA is uh, a run and a half higher than his regular season ERA, but his strikeout rate's the same. Like I said, his walk rate's the same. It's almost all on homers. And also, those 189 postseason innings have been accrued over multiple different versions of Kershaw. <laughs> there was like the young Kershaw first time in the postseason. Maybe he did, you know, have some butterflies. I don't know. I'm not. In, I'm not in that stomach. And then you know, uh, and then there's the middle uh, career uh, Kershaw. Uh, where he wasn't throwing the slider as much. And then there's the old one where he's got no velo, but he's throwing the slider like half the time. So uh, all of these are different. Uh, you're trying to gauge the true talent of a pitcher as it's changing over many different years. So you could say, yes, 189 postseason innings. That's enough sample. Well, it's 189 postseason innings with 10 here, 15 here, 10 here. It's not it's sampled from different times of his career. He's different Kershaws. Anyway, this version of Kershaw is uh, all about throwing the slider uh, a poop ton. Um, and what are, we, what are we up to now? Uh, 44% of the time uh, this year. So uh, he's basically a fastball slider guy that sometimes throws the curve. Uh, good luck with the slider. Good luck with the fastball. Uh, even with the velo down, I think you just you got to guess right and hit a homer. That's, that's the plan against Kershaw. Guess right and hit a homer. And I wonder, you know, thinking about teams that see each other a lot, Padres see plenty of Clayton Kershaw, Dodgers see plenty of you Darvish. Is there any advantage looking at this pitching matchup, Katie? Do you think one side actually has an edge in starting pitching here? Because this one looks pretty close to even to me. No, this is, I think, exactly what the Padres want, having their best going against one of the Dodgers' best. But when you're looking at you Darvish, and arguably one of the best pitchers in the second half in all of baseball, a guy that's locked in, a guy that they've brought to San Diego for this moment. I'm not sure what team has the edge pitching-wise. I think it's a pretty clear cut. I know they're different pitchers, but in terms of overall success and how they attack hitters, it's going to be really hard. I agree with Eno. You could just kind of 
kind of hope you run into a home run there. Both teams have enough star power to do that. But I think the Padres, it's really imperative for them to steal a win at Dodger Stadium because when you you do not want to be down 2-0 to the Dodgers. You just don't. Um, and I, I know that the, one of the Padres' biggest traits off of paper is their resiliency. You have Bob Melvin, one of the best managers in the league behind you. But I think it's really imperative for the car, or for the Padres to go ahead like to do Eno, what Eno's advice and to just hope you hit a home run off Kershaw because I expect this one to be a very low scoring 1-0-2-1 ball game. I think this is going to be of the three games that can be played in Los Angeles in this series. This is easily the best chance the Padres are going to have mathematically of taking a game. You go back to the regular season, Darvish pitched against the Dodgers four times, 31 Ks against five walks, held the Dodgers to a 192-248-372 line. Doesn't mean he'll do it again on Wednesday night, of course, but he's had some success against this juggernaut lineup this year, which has to make you feel just a little bit better about your chances if you are a Padres fan. I do wonder if you have faced a, a, a team a bunch of times, if having a bunch of pitches is helpful uh, versus having, you know, basically relying on two pitches. So maybe he'll throw the splitter a lot, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point. I think the, the deeper arsenal makes a difference here. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. We've said goodbye to two teams in the NL side of this bracket so far. Katie, you, of course, cover the Cardinals and... This looked like a team that could make a very deep run. I thought it was going to be just one of those magical years for the Cardinals. I've seen it before, had similar vibes, and it was not meant to be. So a couple of massive changes, of course. Albert Pujols is retiring. Yadier Molina is retiring. But I wonder, as you've had a few days to let things sink in and had chances to speak to some folks around the team, what changes do you think are in store beyond you know two icons retiring? Yeah, I think the overall sting of the Cardinals' early exit was masked a little bit by the grief that the fan base felt of Pools and Yachty retiring, and rightfully so. And now that I think that the reality has really sunk in that those two are gone, their careers are over, Cardinals fan base is a little angry on how the 2022 season ended, and rightfully so. I mean, when you look at the Cardinals, they did look like a team that was built for the long run. They certainly believed they could to have 162 games of mostly magical moments ultimately end on two not-so-magical days in St. Louis. I mean, that's that's a pretty tough pill to swallow. So when you're looking at how the Cardinals can come back from this, 
there's some major changes that need to take place. The Cardinals have never been a team that has spent significantly a lot of money in the free agency market. They are small market in terms of location, but big market in terms of fan base. So they're kind of always right in the middle in terms of how they spend. I don't want to call them cheap because that's not fair. The front office is not cheap, but they are conservative. But maybe the legend of Albert Pujols can live a little longer in terms of payroll because the Cardinals made a significant amount of money in overall team attendance and what we will now refer to as the Albert Pujols effect for when they go out and they spend a lot of money in the offseason. I mean, they were second in attendance in all of baseball, only to the Dodgers. They had 3.3 million fans. I think they had close to 20 sellouts this season. They had both the largest regular season crowd in Bush Stadium 3's history and the largest postseason crowd in Bush Stadium 3 history in this season. They made a lot of money. So I expect the Cardinals to be actually pretty aggressive in the free agency market and in the trade market. Realistically, there are not a lot of prime years left for Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. The Cardinals always kind of highlighted 2022 through 2024 as being their prime windows of contention. It's clear there are too many holes in that lineup. It was a good lineup. Don't get me wrong. Was it going to be enough to beat the Braves? Who's to know? It wasn't enough to beat the, uh, the Phillies, so we can start there. But when you're looking at this Cardinals lineup for 2023, the, the biggest hole is obviously the catcher. They'll, they'll address that. But I think where they'll really surprise people is I think the Cardinals will be huge players in the shortstop market this year. Fans can make the argument they should have done that last year. But I think with the overall payroll increase that they have based off Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina's last year, they'll be pre- pretty significant right up there with the Giants on big spenders this offseason. Mm, so if we're looking for suitors for Trey Turner and Carlos Correa, you think the Cardinals are right there in the mix for for anyone and everyone? I think they'll make some calls, especially for their middle infield, because you also have to consider how the banning of the shift takes place in 2023. Teams are going to need a very rangy second baseman. That's Tommy Edmond, who was their best shortstop. Um, It's probably not Nolan Gorman, who is a bat for a second baseman. I'm not sure if the Cardinals would feel comfortable. And I know Nolan Gorman's a rookie with high plus power. I don't want to take away any of the strides he made defensively at second base this year. I don't know if they'd feel comfortable with Gorman at second with his lack of range where their defense, a team that they are an organization that prides themselves on their defensive strength, would have to rely on a second baseman that's not really supposed to be playing second base. I had one other kind of lingering question about this team that popped up down the stretch thinking about the season that Nolan Arenado put together that he does have an opt-out this winter is there any indication that he's going to exercise that or is he staying put I don't think so I think when you're looking you can maybe argue that the the two come together and fix the last year of that contract but he's been so adamant that he wants to be in St. Louis I mean he was pretty distraught after game two fighting back tears I mean this is the guy that worked all year worked his whole career to be in a spot like this and ultimately felt like he failed his team in terms of not being able to contribute offensively and you could just tell the motivation to come back and Not just get his team back into the postseason, but prove to himself that he can play in the postseason because Nolan Arenado's numbers in the postseason aren't all that great. To me, that was just a sign that he's not ready to leave. And I thought this even before the playoffs that Nolan wants to be a Cardinal for the remainder of his career. Obviously, we'll know in a matter of weeks or months, but I don't think he's going anywhere. You know, we talked about the Cardinals before the wildcard series. And one thing that really stood out to us is that they just didn't miss a lot of bats as a rotation. Some of that by design. How important do you think it is for them to try and find someone or a couple of someones that can induce more swing and miss? Or is this model sustainable and we just went through a season where it didn't happen to work out in the postseason? 
I don't know. I think you saw what happens when you let the Phillies make contact. And it wasn't all like regular Phillies ball either. It wasn't all a lot of homers. Like it was Segura golfing a, a, a slider at the knees. And, uh, you know, there were a bunch of singles and, and peppered uh, peppered contact in there. So, you know, you saw Mazziliak say before the series, someone he even fielded a question on MLB Network where someone asked him, you know, hey, you got, and they were, they were third worst in strikeout rate uh, as a staff uh, in, in baseball this year. Hey, you have a, a, a staff that works to contact when most of the league, you know, is trying to strike guys out. Does it, is that work? And he's like, well, it's, you know, we like the ball, the ball being hit to our great defense. And that's been a staple of, of Cardinals baseball. Um, but I think we saw that it didn't really work out that well. The, the good news that I see is I know that Albert Pujols had a great season, but I think losing, and I know Yadi Molina is a legend, but I think losing those two in terms of real, raw, on-the-field production uh, doesn't doesn't make them that much worse. I, I'm trying not to be rude. I'm just saying, like, you know, in terms, they're still a good team. You know, they're going to lose some guys, but they're still a good team, and they would have $30 million, I think, about, I'm, I'm guessing there's arbitrations and stuff, uh, but I, I think they'd have about $30 million to spend to get just to back to last year. Now, if Katie's right and they go past that, maybe you're talking 40 or $50 million to spend the offseason. Now, that's kind of exciting. The the thing that, I, and I do think the shortstop is interesting, and, and they will probably be in on that. Um, and and it, they've had a third third best offense in the league this year. And, you know, so I think, you know, just keeping a strength is good. But what about that strikeout rate? Is there somebody they could get on the market that would do something about that in their rotation? Um, there is, you know, Jacob deGrom. Mm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I think that would be an ultimate power move and, and may do more for this team uh, in terms of strength and weaknesses than, uh, you know, another excellent shortstop uh, hitting. You know, like they do have a lot of good hitters. What if you put Jake deGrom on the top of that roster? Uh, I think that at least when you go into a postseason series and I say, ha we got Jake DeGrom and a really good offense and we'll figure out, you know, game two, we'll, we'll probably have somebody good in Michaelis or Jordan Montgomery and, you know, we'll still have the regular Cardinal staff. You know, I had people uh, from inside the game DMing me about uh, just Jose Quintana and Miles Michaelis game one and game two. Is this a is this like a playoff rotation? So I don't know. I, I, I think that Katie's right that this is, you know, that, that they should be in on the shortstop thing. And that and, the, and there being four shortstops means that there might be an opportunity for one being a slight value, you know, being a little bit less than the other guys. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, and, and it's going to be worse in starting pitching because who's up there with Jake DeGrom? Nobody. Who's, who's, who's second to Jake DeGrom? Verlander will be out there. Yeah, that's an interesting one, too. Carlos Rodon will be out there. Yeah. couple options. I would jump in that part of the pool, honestly. And I think that that could make a big impact. If you got $50 million, can you pull off two? The question then will also be years, right? You know, beyond. Like, can you, could you spend $50 million in year one next year? Like, maybe uh, on two players, then maybe. But, like, how many years did you have to, did you have to commit to that? Because there will be guys that get more expenses over time. Uh, in arbitration, and there will be, and the, and there, and frankly, uh, for the Cardinals, there is a bit of a glut of of guys leaving um, after next year. Jordan Montgomery, yes. Jack Flaherty, Jordan Hicks, uh, Tyler O'Neill will have one more year. 
it does there is a bit of a window so if they could get Rodon for an absolutely huge amount of money but three years i think they would love it like three and a hundred or something like i think they would they might that might be something that really fits their window perfectly uh but uh it doesn't seem like a team that's going to go give degrom six and 180. No, no, no. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the Degrom contract is going to look like. It might be one of the most complex contracts we've ever seen for a pitcher, oh, given all sorts of the amazing ceiling and, the and injuries, massive risk. And... Yeah, it's it's just a it's a really tough thing to to model out. At least it is for uh, someone like me who doesn't model contracts for a living. Katie, what do you think happens with Jordan Walker? Looking at the prospect situation, right? He's there. Clearly their best all-around prospect. Looks like a guy that could play in the big leagues in 2023. They got Mason Wynn, a young shortstop people saw in the Futures game. I'm wondering if maybe Mason Wynn and some of the other prospects they have behind him are possible trade pieces to go out and get a second pitcher. Because if you start thinking ahead like Eno was about the years beyond 2023 and losing some of those controllable guys or guys that were previously signed, you do need a controllable starter who's going to be there beyond next season. And the best way to get a player like that is to make a trade. So if you sign a shortstop, Mason Wynn becomes a little bit less important to your future. And maybe Mason Wynn helps you make a deal with a team like the Marlins. The Marlins. It's always the Marlins. <laughs> <laughs> They've done it before. The Marlins. They'll do it again. Oh, Pipeline's open. No, Cardinals fans are screaming right now, no more trading with the Marlins. It always seems to benefit Miami and not St. Louis. Uh, look, Mason Wynn's an electric player, a fun prospect, great personality. Yeah, Sandy Alcantara would look pretty good in St. Louis yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> he would look pretty good. Don't remind Cardinals fans. Uh, they know this. But when you look at... I think the way that the Cardinals shop around the free agent market, and if they do end up getting a shortstop, then it makes Mason Wynn expendable. But Jordan Walker, I think, is untouchable regardless. I think he'll come into spring training with a legitimate shot to win a spot on the active roster. Cardinals plan on having a much better season all around from Tyler O'Neill next year. Lars Newpar, all the credit to him, came in as a reserve outfielder, wasn't even on the big league uh, staff for most of the first half, and absolutely carried that team in the second half all the way around. I would expect him to have a, a spot in that lineup. And then Dylan Carlson, never used to be a platoon bat, but all of a sudden became super splitty against right-handed hitters, uh, right-handed pitchers, I should say. So his, I think, role in, in this team is a little bit unclear, especially because he was ruled untouchable and he would not be traded in any of the rumored Juan Soto trades at the deadline. So that is interesting to me. I do think the Cardinals could maybe explore the outfield, but if they don't, Jordan Walker, I think, has a legitimate chance to win that spot. And keep in mind, Walker was a third baseman for most of his professional career, just started a switch to the outfield this year with AA Springfield. So that might be their only kind of trepidation or why they'd be reserved about Maybe he won't be ready, but from a bad perspective, that ceiling is so, so high. Yeah, I think he could make that adjustment reasonably quickly if uh, I mean, it's already started. But I think by opening day next year, if he's ready as a hitter, I think you're right. And there's a chance they would actually see what happens and give him the job. Because I think corner outfielders are the sort of thing that if you don't have enough when the season begins, you can always find corner infielders at the trade deadline. Every team has someone available it seems or at least the non-contending teams always have someone they're willing to move that can cover those spots so I think there's a a lot that's going to change in St. Louis and yeah I'm guessing most Cardinals fans are saying let's not trade with the Marlins or or the Rays let's just <laughs> stay away from, just from no those Florida. teams yeah we're not we're not making deals with the Florida teams anymore let's look somewhere else as we try and find that young pitching 
Uh, we'll save the 2022 Mets goodbye for a future episode. So that's, that's a long one. That's gonna yeah. that might be its own episode. Maybe that's what Keith and I will talk about later in the week. I have to say though, for just as a blanket statement about both teams, they're both really good teams. It didn't really end that well for either of them, but uh, I think that they both will be good next year. Oh, there's a chance the Mets are better next year. Very yeah. good chance. I think uh, it's true even of the Cardinals. The vengeful Mets and the vengeful Cardinals. The Cardinals are, uh, they have these young pieces. Newt Barr really, uh, I think, established himself. O'Neill is going to, I agree, is going to bounce back. I think Carlson still has more upside. I think there's like there's something there. And then you're adding Jordan Walker to mix. So you're adding youthful upside that, that can replace what's gone, what's leaving and and maybe do better even uh, if they hit the ground running. And then you've also identified a, a real weakness in the strikeout rate where I think they'll go to town on that. So, uh, and then you, and as you said, you have coffers uh, that you've, that you've put together. So, and then the, the Mets obviously have coffers and, uh, and a pretty good baseline to start with. Getting clipped in the wild card series is how baseball villains are going to be made in the future. So I think we're going to have vengeful cards and vengeful Mets uh, on the table this winter as they try and retool for 2023 and beyond. That's going to do it for this episode of the 3-0 Show. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. You can find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you need a subscription to The Athletic, it's a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Thursday. You always got the green light here. Green light three.